Volume One, Chapter Eight of Gwen Wynn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Stevens. Gwen Wynn, A Romance of the Why, by Main Reed. Volume One, Chapter Eight. A Suspicious Stranger. While Mr. Musgrave is boring the elderly spinster about new scarlet cloaks for the girls of the church choir and other parish matters, George Shenstone is standing on the topmost step of the boat-stair, in a mood of mind even less enviable than hers. For he has looked down into the dock, and there sees no Gwendolen, neither boat nor lady, nor is there sign of either upon the water, far as he can command a view of it no sounds such as he would wish and might expect to hear no dipping of oars nor what would be still more agreeable to his ear the soft voices of women instead only the note of a cuckoo in monotonous repetition the bird balancing itself on a branch near by and farther off the hickle laughing as if in mockery and at him mocking his impatience ay something more almost his misery that it is so, his soliloquy tells. Odd, her being out on the river. She promised me to go riding to-day. Very odd indeed. Gwen isn't the same she was, acting strange altogether for the last three or four days. Wonder what it means. By Jove, I can't comprehend it. His non-comprehension does not hinder a dark shadow from stealing over his brow, and there staying. It is not unobserved. Through the leaves of the evergreen, Joseph notes the pained expression, and interprets it in his own shrewd way, not far from the right one. The old servant, soliloquising in less conjectural strain, says, or rather thinks, "'Master George be mad sweet on Miss Gwen. The country folk are all talking on it, thinking she's same on him, as if they knew anything about it. I knows better. And he ain't no ways confident, else there wouldn't be that query look on's face.' It's the token of jealousy, for sure. I don't believe he have suspicion of any rival particular. Ah, it don't need that we sit a grand beauty as she be. He as lover might be jealous of the sun kissing her cheeks or the wind tossing her hair. Joseph is a Welshman of bardic ancestry, and thinks poetry. He continues, I know what's took her on the river if he don't. Yes, yes, my young lady, you thought yourself wonderful clever leaving old Joe behind, telling him to hide hisself and bribing him to stay hid. And you suppose I don't observe them glances exchanged twixt you and the salmon fisher, sly but for all that hot as streaks of fire? And you think I didn't see Mr. Whitecap going down afore ye thought of a row yourself? Oh no, I noticed nothing of all that, not I. Warn't meant for me, not for Joe, ha <laughs> ha! with a suppressed giggle at the popular catch coming in so apropos, he once more fixes his eyes on the face of the impatient watcher, proceeding with his soliloquy, though in changed strain. Poor young gentleman! I do pity ye to be sure. Ye're a good sort, and everybody likes him. So do she, but not the way ye want her to. Well, things of that kind allus do go contrary-wise. Never seem to run smooth-like. I'd help him myself if twere in my power, but it ain't. In such cases help can only come from the place where they say matches be made. That's heaven. Ah, he's looking a bit brighter. What's cheering him? The boat coming back? I can't see it from here, nor I don't hear any rattle of oars. The change he notes in George Shenstone's manner is not caused by the returning pleasure craft. 
simply a reflection which crossing his mind for the moment tranquillizes him what a stupid i am he mutters self-accusingly now i remember there was nothing said about the hour we were to go riding and i suppose she understood in the afternoon it was so the last time we went out together by jove yes it's all right i take it she'll be back in good time yet thus reassured he remains listening still more satisfied when a dull thumping sound in regular repetition tells him of oars working in their rollocks were he learned in boating tactics he would know there are two pairs of them and think this strange too since the gwendoline carries only one but he is not so skilled instead rather averse to aquatics his chosen home the hunting field his favourite seat in a saddle not on a boat's thwart it is only when the plashing of the oars in the tranquil water of the byway is borne clear along the cliff that he perceives there are two pairs at work while at the same time he observes two boats approaching the little dock where but one belongs alone at that leading boat does he look with eyes in which as he continues to gaze surprise becomes wonderment dashed with something like displeasure the boat he has recognised at the first glance the gwendoline as also the two ladies in the stern but there is also a man on the mid-thwart plying the oars who the deuce is he thus to himself george shenstone puts it not old joe not the least like him nor is it the family charon who sits solitary on the thwarts of that following instead joseph is now by mr shenstone's side passing him in haste making to go down the boat stairs what's the meaning of all this joe asked the young man in stark astonishment meaning of what sir returns the old boatman with an air of assumed innocence be there anything amiss oh no nothing stammers shenstone only i supposed you were out with the young ladies how is it you haven't gone well sir miss gwen didn't wish it the day being fine and nothing of flood in the river she said she'd do the rowing herself she hasn't been doing it for all that mutters shenstone to himself as joseph glides past and on down the stair then repeating who the deuce is he the interrogation as before referring to him who rows the pleasure boat by this it has been brought bow in to the dock its stern touching the bottom of the stair and as the ladies step out of it george shenstone overhears a dialogue which instead of quieting his perturbed spirit but excites him still more almost to madness it is miss wynne who has commenced it saying you'll come up to the house and let me introduce you to my aunt this to the gentleman who has been pulling her boat and has just abandoned the oars soon as seeing its painter in the hands of the servant oh thank you he returns i would with pleasure but as you see i am not quite presentable just now anything but fit for a drawing-room so i beg your excuse me to-day his saturated shirt-front with other garments dripping tells why the apology but does not explain either that or aught else to him on the top of the stair who hearkening further hears other speeches which while perplexing him do naught to allay the wild tempest now surging through his soul unseen himself for he has stepped behind the tree lately screening joseph he sees gwen wynne hold out her hand to be pressed in parting salute hears her address the stranger in words of gratitude warm as though she were under some great obligation to him then the latter leaps out of the pleasure boat into the other brought alongside and is rowed away by his waterman while the ladies ascend the stair 
Gwen, lingeringly, at almost every step, turning her face towards the fishing skiff, till this, pulled around the upper end of the eyot, can no longer be seen. All this George Shenstone observes, drawing deductions which send the blood in chill creep through his veins. Though still puzzled by the wet garments, the presence of the gentleman wearing them seems to solve that other enigma, unexplained as painful, the strangeness he has of late observed in the ways of Miss Wynne. Nor is he far out in his fancy, bitter though it may be. Not until the two ladies have reached the stairhead do they become aware of his being there, and not then till Gwen has made some observations to the companion, which, as those addressed to the stranger, unfortunately for himself, George Shenstone overhears. "'We'll be in time for luncheon yet, and Aunt needn't know anything of what's delayed us, at least not just now. True, if the like had happened to herself, say some thirty or forty years ago, she'd want all the world to hear of it, particularly that portion of the world eclept Cheltenham. The dear old lady! Ha-ha!' after a laugh, continuing, "'But, speaking seriously, Nell, I don't wish any one to be the wiser about our bit of an escapade, least of all a certain young gentleman whose Christian name begins with a G, and surname with an S.' "'Those initials answer for mine,' says George Shenstone, coming forward and confronting her. "'If your observation was meant for me, Miss Wynne, I can only express regret for my bad luck in being within earshot of it.' At his appearance, so unexpected and abrupt, Gwen Wynne had given a start, feeling guilty and looking it. Soon, however, reflecting whence he has come, and hearing what said, she feels less self-condemned than indignant, as evinced by her rejoinder. "'Ah! You've been overhearing us, Mr. Shenstone. Bad luck, you call it. Bad or good, I don't think you are justified in attributing it to chance.' When a gentleman deliberately stations himself behind a shady bush, like that Laurestinus, for instance, and there stands listening, intentionally— Suddenly she interrupts herself, and stands silent too. This, on observing the effect of her words, and that they have struck terribly home. With bowed head, the baronet's son is stooping towards her, the cloud on his brow telling of sadness, not anger. Seeing it, the old tenderness returns to her, with its familiarity, and she exclaims, "'Come, George, there must be no quarrel between you and me. What you've just seen and heard will be all explained by something you have yet to hear. Miss Lees and I have had a little bit of an adventure, and if you'll promise it shan't go further, we'll make you acquainted with it.' Addressed in this style, he readily gives the promise, gladly, too. The confidence so offered seems favourable to himself but, looking for explanation on the instant, he is disappointed. Asking for it, it is denied him, with reason assigned thus. "'You forget we've been full four hours on the river, and are as hungry as a pair of kingfishers, hawks, I suppose you'd say, being a game-preserver. Never mind about the simile. Let us in to luncheon, if not too late.' She steps hurriedly off towards the house, the companion following, Shenstone behind both. However hungry they, never man went to a meal with less appetite than he. All Gwen's cajoling has not tranquillised his spirit, nor driven out of his thoughts that man with the bronzed complexion, dark moustache, and white helmet hat. End of Volume 1, Chapter 8